Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. We're going to be concluding chapter 9 this morning, uh, January 8th, which also happens to be Bryce's wedding day uh, to his fiancée, so he probably won't be here that Sunday either. But on January 8th, we'll pick right back up on John chapter 10, verse 1, Lord willing, and the creek doesn't rise. Uh, we'll be back here, and that'll actually be the theme message for 2023 as we look forward into this new year of where the Lord may be taking us and what he may be calling us to do. But this morning, we're going to conclude John chapter 9 and look at the last paragraph in a message I've entitled, Sight for the Soul. Sight for the Soul. We'll conclude this morning looking at John's account, this entire chapter, 41 verses, looking at how Jesus healed a man of congenital blindness and then the subsequent fallout from that healing uh, where the jealous Jewish leaders really sought to shut down Jesus' ministry and his message. And as we come to this last paragraph of this chapter, Jesus now re-enters the narrative after having been absent physically and personally since verses 6 and 7 when he performed the miracle of healing the man born blind. After he gave the man his sight by spitting on the ground, making mud, putting those mud pies in his eyes, and telling him to go wash at the pool of Siloam, Jesus disappears from the encounter. And what follows from verses 8 through 34 is a series of conversations and really inquisitions where the religious leaders, his neighbors, and even his parents get involved and really kind of leave the, the man hanging in front of the Pharisees to try to attempt to get at the bottom of this miracle. Exactly what happened? Is it a legitimate miracle? Who is this guy Jesus? And when Jesus does show back up, uh, this formerly blind beggar has gone through a veritable crucible of questioning, and Jesus finds a man who by, by grace has really moved forward in, uh, to a point of profound faith in Jesus. Now, last week, we considered the progression of faith we see in this formerly blind beggar as he experiences God's grace upon grace upon grace in his life. And we identified this progress by the way in which he refers to Jesus in this chapter. Up in verse um, 11, when the neighbors asked Jesus or asked the man, who, who is it that healed you? The man said, the man called Jesus. Very simple, straightforward. He was aware of Jesus's existence. And this is the first step to coming to faith in Jesus. You must become aware that he exists. And so that was the first step of progress in faith. And then next, as we move to verse 17, as he is harshly questioned by the Pharisees, that we see him respond, moving a little further down the faith continuum by saying that he is, quote, a prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a prophet. Recently, a poll was conducted by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries, and they asked a, a series of questions to over 3,000 professing Christians in America. This is a very recent poll. One of the statements that caught my attention, it was a true or false statement they were asked to respond to, was this statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Again, these, these are professing Christians in North America. You notice there, 31% strongly agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 
and 22% were somewhat in agreement with that statement. In other words, 53% of professing Christians in America say that Jesus is just this, a prophet, not God in human flesh. Is it any wonder why we are in the state we are in in this country? Those who even profess to know Christ. Well, this is the basic position where this formerly blind beggar was in in verse 17. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet. And then we see his faith progress beyond that. As you move to verse 33, he is intensely questioned for the second time by the religious leaders over Israel. And at the conclusion of that, he makes this statement about Jesus. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He progresses a little further on the faith continuum by saying not only is he the man Jesus, not only is he a prophet, a teacher, but he was sent from God. That's significant. And then we noticed last week as we looked at the beginning of this last paragraph, just briefly, in verse 38, he proclaims this about Jesus to Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. He believes he's the son of man. And then he fell down and worshiped him. What a fantastic progression of faith we see in this man where he's brought to a point of full, worshipful profession of faith. Now, what Jesus does in this last paragraph just shows the absolute brilliance of the Lord. He takes this very real, very legitimate, attested to miracle, and he begins to use that as a springboard, a a platform to teach spiritual truth. You may have heard this saying before, in every parable, there's a miracle, and in every miracle, there's a parable. And what Jesus does is he takes this miracle of taking this congenitally born blind beggar and gives him physical sight, and he begins to parabolically teach from that about what it means to be taken from spiritual blindness to be supernaturally given spiritual sight. And he compares and contrasts spiritual sight with spiritual blindness by comparing and contrasting the spiritual sight this blind beggar now has. He's confessed Jesus as Lord and the spiritual blindness these religious rulers remain in. You know, this metaphor of blindness referring to those who are lost, those who are in darkness, those who are still in their sins, it's in the Old Testament and New Testament alike as a metaphor for this reality. Here's some examples. This is certainly not exhaustive. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 43, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah with these words, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. God spoke in a similar way through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 5, verse 21. He said, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes, but see not, who have ears, but hear not. In the New Testament, as Paul is giving his uh, record and his testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he recounts to the king how Jesus called him and what he had called him to do. Look at Acts 27, or excuse me, 26, verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who who are sanctified by faith in me. This happened on the Damascus Road experience. And if you remember what happened, Saul was knocked off his theological high horse. He was blinded by the brightness of the brilliance of Jesus. And Jesus then returns to to Paul his physical sight, but then gives him 
spiritual sight, both miraculous. In Ephesians 4, Paul describes the lost condition of all humanity apart from Jesus like this. He says in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And as you move to the book of Revelation, as Jesus writes those seven letters to those seven churches, he writes to the church in Laodicea, I think a church that perfectly represents the 53% of unconverted professing Christians in our country. Trust me, if you don't think Jesus is God, you're unconverted. He says to them these words in Revelation 3.17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So the Bible speaks thoroughly of this physical blindness being representative of spiritual blindness, of being lost, separated from God. And this is a spiritual blindness that affects all of humanity. We were all born in sin. You were born spiritually blind. But compounding that human blindness because of our human condition and sinfulness, there's also a blindness that is brought upon us by the delusion of Satan. We're something like doubly blind. Notice what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, so not only are the lost spiritually blind because of their own sin nature, but they're doubly blind because of the deception of the evil one. This kind of blindness cannot be overcome by your own initiative. This kind of spiritual blindness can only be relieved, can only be healed by the miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ. And Jesus masterfully takes this miracle where he did just that in a physical way, and now he's going to apply that to the spiritual reality in our lives. So let's look at our focal passage, the last paragraph of John chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 35 through 41. This is the infallible word of God. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, In these few brief verses, somewhat straightforward, but then also somewhat cryptic, I want to break it down into two sections. Verse 35 to verse 38, that's the beggar, and that's where we see uh, spiritual blindness and then spiritual sight being given. And then verses 39 to 41, that's the Pharisees who are spiritually blind. What we have here is Jesus presenting a comparison and a contrast between spiritual sight and spiritual blindness, and what are some realities about those two 
existences. So the first thing I want us to consider from the passage this morning is this. Number one, I want us to think about the blessing, the blessing of spiritual sight. If you're here this morning and you have spiritual sight to see the glory of God in the face and the nature and the character and the person and the work of Jesus, you need to know that is a blessing. You have been blessed with spiritual sight. You didn't work for it. You didn't accomplish it. You didn't achieve it. You certainly didn't earn it or deserve it. It is a gracious blessing from God. There's a few things I want us to think about that characterize this blessing of spiritual sight we see right here from the passage. The first one is this. Number one, spiritual sight commences from divine initiative. If you have spiritual sight, you need to know that it commenced in your life. It started in your life because of not your initiation, but divine initiative. Think about it. In this whole chapter, all the way back up at the beginning of the chapter, who initiated the conversation with the blind beggar? Did he start it? No. Actually, the way the conversation started, if you'll remember, was his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked a pretty dumb question. They, Jesus saw the blind beggar. I think he intentionally went out that gate where that fixture of the beggar was. He looked at him intently in such a way that the disciples noticed Jesus notice him, and then they asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then Jesus just unilaterally determines to spit in the ground, make some mud, put it on the man's eyes. It wasn't a request. It wasn't something he deserved. It was Jesus's divine initiative. And it's interesting. We didn't talk about this particular phrase when we studied this two weeks ago, but I want you to look back up in verse 5 of this chapter, what Jesus says just before he heals the man. In verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, watch this, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud and the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Jesus repeated this I am statement he had already made about himself in the previous chapter. In other words, Without me, there is no light. I am the light of the world. Without me, there is no vision. Without me, there is no sight. There is no escape from spiritual blindness. So he says, watch this. I'm the light of the world, and I'm about to give this guy sight. Fantastic. Jesus takes unilateral initiative in giving this man sight. Now, after these inquisitions, as the chapter progresses, he is subsequently thrown out by the Pharisees, not thrown out of just their presence, but as I mentioned last week, he's thrown out of the, the synagogue. He's thrown out of the life of the Jewish people. He's lo- thrown out of the center of their religious, their social, their familial, their economic engagement. You can't come back to be a part of the spiritual people, the, the people of God. And v- verse 20, 35 we read just a moment ago says that Jesus sought him out. Jesus went and looked for him. Did you know that all of us spiritually were cast out of the presence of God? And Jesus comes looking for us. He says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not just the saving, but the seeking. Why? Because Romans 3 says, no one seeks after God, no, not one. 
If it were not for the divine initiative of the Savior come and seeking you, you would never know Him. He comes and He seeks after us. And when Jesus finds Him, again, He initiates the conversation. He finds the man who's been cast out of the synagogue by the religious rulers, and He asks them a question. What was the question? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Interesting question. Now, one thing I think we can probably land on is that because this man was a fixture at the temple, he was always there begging, no doubt he absorbed some theological truth. I mean, he's been there for years, a couple decades likely. He's absorbed some things about the promises of God, and he understands some principles and some precepts about God's promised deliverance. And so he asks this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? This title, Son of Man, appears in the Gospel of John 13 times. It's actually the, the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself much more than any other title in the four Gospels. And sometimes we can hear this title, Son of Man, and we think what Jesus is referring to is his humanity. We know uh, that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. So we can think, well, the title Son of God refers to his deity, and the title Son of Man refers to his humanity. And it is true, he's fully human. But the title Son of Man is actually another reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Because it's a title that was used in the Old Testament as a messianic title, as a prophecy about the one who was to come. It's used significantly in the prophetic book of Ezekiel and also the book of Daniel. I want you to notice how it's described in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed now this son of man that daniel saw in this night vision is obviously someone who is divine someone who has deity why because he's given an eternal kingdom he's giving glory all the peoples of the earth will provide to him worshipful service this is god but it's not god the father because he's brought before the ancient of days this is a prefigurement of the Trinity in the Old Testament. This is God the Son, the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. So again, Jesus takes the initiative in this follow-up conversation. He asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the promised messianic kingdom that's coming? Do you believe that? Friend, this is the first step of having spiritual sight. Jesus takes the initiative to find you. All spiritual sight commences from divine initiative. But here's the second reality of spiritual sight I want us to consider. Spiritual sight confesses faith and repentance. Those who have received spiritual sight confess their faith in Jesus and repentance towards God because of Jesus. In these short verses, we see the Lord open up the eyes of his heart. 
We sing that sometimes, right? Open the eyes of my heart. Jesus is opening the eyes of his heart. And he is open to repent and to believe. And we see that in these words, Lord, I believe. Those two words are representative of the two sides of the coin of faith and repentance. Lord, what does that word mean? You're the ruler. I'm not. You're the boss. I'm not. I no longer want to self-determine where I go and what I do. I surrender to you as Lord. I repent of the rule of my life. I repent of the sins that have resulted from that rule, and I surrender to you as Lord. Quite a profession. And then he says, I believe. That's what the Gospel of John is all about, belief. These things were written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He believes. He he trusts. He depends. He clings to and relies upon. This is an expression from this formerly blind beggar of faith and repentance. And it's interesting, Jesus' self-disclosure to this man that he is, in fact, the Son of Man, it's somewhat enigmatic, the way Jesus answers him. He said, who is he that I can believe in him? What did Jesus say in verse 37? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Wait, are you saying it's you? (laughs) What are you saying there, Jesus? I I think I'm going to start answering questions from Amy like this. Who uh, left this dirty dishes out out here? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I'm not saying it's me, but you've seen him, and it's the one that's talking right now. (laughs) So it's kind of odd that Jesus would answer this way. But he answered a similar way to the woman at the well. You remember his answer to the woman at the well? She asked the question, well, we know that when Messiah comes, he will reveal, us, reveal to us everything. And he, she, he says to her, the one who speaks to you is he. Kind of enigmatic, but he's saying, it's me, I'm here. And this formerly blind beggar, when Jesus reveals his identity, he confesses with repentance and faith. How did he get to this point? How did he get to this point of repentance? Surrendering to the lordship of Jesus, of believing in Jesus. He wasn't brought there by his own self-revelation, was he? He has a heart that, as Jesus would describe it, is good soil. If you've ever had a garden, you know good soil doesn't just happen. You have to prepare the good soil soil. And I believe God, the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit of God, has been preparing this formerly blind beggar's heart to be some good soil that when Jesus plants the seed of who he is, the one who's speaking to you is he, Lord, I believe. And when he refers to Lord, it's the fullest, most elevated sense of the word. And this is how you know spiritual sight has come to someone. They surrender to the lordship of Jesus. They come under his authority as the new regent in their life. And that really leads to the third evidence of having received spiritual sight. It's this. Thirdly, it is confirmed by humble worship. Receiving spiritual sight is confirmed in your life by humble worship. Verse 38, and he worshiped him. I told you last week that Greek word under that word worship, proskuneo, it literally means to cast yourself down at the feet of a regal figure, to fall on your face, prostrate before someone else. This man 
fell on his knees, on his face before Jesus. How do you know when someone is a real disciple, an authentic follower of Christ? Here's how you know. He's a worshiper. She's a worshiper. How do you know you're a Christian? Not because you said some prayer. Not because you filled out some form. How do you know you're truly born again? Not because you asked God to do something for you. Here's evidence you are a Christian. Are you a worshiper? Do you worship at the feet of Jesus? How do you know if you've been transformed by the gospel? Are you a worshiper? And this reality is especially relevant in 2022 with the narcissistic, sentimental, self-centered approach to the so-called gospel we see in the Western church today. This system develops in people a sense that it's all about you. It's all about you. What do you want? You're the hero of the story. You're the center of your universe. Jesus came to make all your dreams come true. This is the false gospel in many supposed conservative churches today. Friend, it is not about you. It's about Jesus. And the modern church plays right into this this self-centered, narcissistic mentality. This man falls on his face in adoration and worship. This, by the way, is the exact opposite response that the Pharisees had in the previous chapter. When Jesus revealed who he was to the Pharisees at the end of chapter 8, what did they do? They picked up stones to kill him. When Jesus reveals his true identity, this formerly blind beggar, he falls on his face to worship. So if you are asking yourself the question, how do I know if I'm truly born again? Ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you love God? Do you desire to be obedient to him as your Lord? Do you desire to honor him? This should be the priority of the Christian's life. And this is true. We can worship anywhere, right? We worship God anywhere. But it is especially true that we are called to worship God among the covenant community of faith known as his church. We're called to worship with the family worship with other believers. And so if we have people who are professing Christians, oh, I'm a Christian, I just don't have any desire to go to church. If we have people who are on our membership roles that have zero interest in worshiping God with the people of God, I have serious concerns for their souls. Do they really believe? They're not worshipers? He's thrown out of the system of his day because of his association with Christ. And here we have in this blind beggar really two biographies, a physical biography and a spiritual biography. He's blind physically. He was blind spiritually. And because of the initiation of the Lord, he becomes seeing physically and seeing spiritually And he takes his place at the feet of the Savior and becomes a worshiper, as all true believers do. Well, in contrast to the blessing of spiritual sight we see in the beggar, Jesus begins to 
elucidate for us the second thing, and that is the bondage of spiritual blindness. The bondage of spiritual blindness. In the same way Jesus illustrates this reality, he shows to us in the last few verses the characteristics of those who are spiritually blind. We won't spend as much time on this one, but I do want us to consider these three marks of spiritual blindness. The first one is this. Number one, spiritual blindness refuses to admit the problem. Spiritual blindness refuses to admit there's a problem. Look at verse 39 again. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. When Jesus says those who see, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It could be translated those who think they see. Those who think they've got spiritual sight. Those who think they've got insight into the things of God. It would be akin to what Jesus said to these religious leaders again uh, in Luke chapter 5. Of course, what happens there is Jesus is eating at Levi or Matthew, the tax collector's home, and the Pharisees and scribes go to not Jesus to complain, but go to his friends. It's always the way they work. I'm not going to complain to your face. I'm going to go talk to somebody else, and hopefully they complain to your face. So they go to the disciples, and they begin to grumble too threatened to talk face-to-face to to Jesus. Look at Luke 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. Are you going to talk about me behind my back? Well, here, let me answer your question. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And again, Jesus is kind of speaking here tongue-in-cheek. I've not called the righteous, or those of you who think you're righteous, those of you who think you've got all your theological ducks in a row, those who think that you've earned God's approval, I've not called, come to call you to repentance because you don't think you need it. You don't see that you've got a problem. But I've, called to, I've come to call sinners to repentance, those who admit they need it. And even in our focal text, in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. The verb there for judgment, for this noun, the verb means to put asunder, to divide. And we see this in the parable of the sheep and the goats at the judgment. There is going to be a division, a a separating, a dividing this is why Jesus came into the, to the world. Friends, Jesus is the dividing line for all of humanity. You know, this time of the year, as we celebrate Advent, as Wade mentioned earlier in our prayer time, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, and we do so because we anticipate the second coming of Jesus when he will forever and always divide. But even whenever Jesus came the first time, he was celebrated by the angelic hosts. He was celebrated by the shepherds. He was celebrated by the wise men who came from the east, but he wasn't celebrated by everybody. The power brokers of his day, namely Herod, tried to kill him. And as that infant baby Jesus was taken into the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, there Simeon saw him, and he prophesied over Jesus these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Speaking to Mary, his mother, he said, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall 
and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This child is appointed as a dividing line, as great division. Christ came to seek and to save the lost, but his coming is also marked by division. For judgment I came into the world, he said. And the first problem here of the blind and the reason they stay blind, they refuse to admit, I got a problem. I've got a problem. Which really is compounded by the second thing. The second mark of spiritual blindness from this text is it is rooted in personal pride. Spiritual blindness is rooted in personal pride. So apparently after the Pharisees cast this man out of their presence and then out of the synagogue, some of them stalked him. (laughs) They followed him. Where is he going? What's he going to do? We understand what a stalker is, right? Some of you are Facebook stalkers. You don't have to admit it. Just confess it to the Lord. You meet somebody in person. Oh, I'm going to go look at their Facebook. I don't know all about them. No Facebook stalkers back then, but there were some people stalkers, and some of these Pharisees were stalking this man. I just imagine them hiding in the bushes, kind of watching, you know, what's going to happen with this man. And of course, Jesus goes and finds him. He begins to enter into this conversation, and when Jesus says what he says about those who are blind, they pop out of the bushes. What? Are you talking about us? Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? They couldn't possibly imagine that Jesus would vilify them and consider them to be spiritually blind. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. It's the the essence of what we saw earlier from Luke 5. Jesus says, those who are well don't need a physician. Those who think they can see don't need to be given sight. You see, they saw themselves as the most educated, the most learned, the most erudite, the the self-appointed experts in the law of God. How could they possibly be spiritually blind when they're the gatekeepers of truth? And this is a mark of spiritual blindness. It's rooted in personal pride. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're well-educated, you're spiritually blind. And it doesn't mean that just because you aren't very well educated, you're not spiritually blind. Educated and uneducated alike can have this personal pride. Thinking I can earn my own way, I can achieve this moral code or fulfill some ethical expectation and I'll be accepted by God. These Pharisees reveal they are in spiritual blindness because they are prideful. They could not possibly imagine that they are blind. But the clearest and most straightforward way that spiritual blindness is identified is this last mark. Spiritual blindness ultimately rejects God's gracious provision. Those who are spiritually blind reject and reject and reject again God's gracious provision in Jesus. Again, this last statement in verse 41 is somewhat cryptic, maybe a little confusing in the context because Jesus is kind of changing the way he's referring to blindness and seeing and guilt and no guilt. But look at verse 41 again, and I'll do my best to try to explain it. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What is he saying? 
He's saying, his point is that those who recognize their blindness, who say, I'm blind, they become guiltless because they depend on the provision of Jesus. But those who say, I'm not blind, I can see perfectly. Jesus says, those of you that think you don't have vision problems, your guilt remains. You are lost in your sins. These Pharisees, they think they see perfectly well, but their guilt remains because they have rejected God's gracious provision provided in Jesus, the great physician who had just delivered this man of congenital birth defect, of blindness from the womb, is also offering supernatural spiritual sight, and they reject the gracious offer. I say, we can see perfectly well. Jesus says, yeah, your guilt remains. You're lost in your sins. You know, it's possible for truth to be right in front of us and completely miss it. It's possible for the truth to be glaring you in the face and you don't see it. I remember one time seeing a greeting card that had this funny cartoon about Sherlock Holmes and his companion, Dr. Watson. They are going on a camping trip, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Well, Sherlock Holmes was awakened in the middle of the night, and he nudges Watson and says, Watson, look up. What do you see? And Watson says, I see millions and millions of stars. And the ever-mindful Holmes says, well, what does that tell you? And he says, well, meteorologically, it tells me that there are millions and millions of galaxies with billions of stars. Theologically, it tells me that we are very small in this universe and God is very large. Meteorologically, it tells me that it is a clear day and tomorrow will be a nice day here out in the forest. What does it tell you? Holmes says, it tells me someone has stolen our tent. He's always observant, that Sherlock Holmes. Sometimes we can be blind to what is right in front of us. Jesus is standing before these Pharisees, also standing there as this man who has been supernaturally, miraculously healed of congenital blindness, and they don't see it. It's right in front of them. At the beginning of this message, I quoted from Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. Jesus told them, among other things, they were blind. But we know historically about the city of Laodicea. It was a major metropolis that the inhabitants and residents of that city were uncommonly wealthy for that period of time. If you were to pull up to Laodicea Baptist Church, you would see gold-plated chariots, some six and eight horsepower. They would be wearing the latest fashions and a Rolex sundial on their wrists. Many of them had a second home on the lake with a four-slave outboard motor. They had everything. They had material possessions. Anything you could want. They were so fat and happy, they had lost their dependence upon God. Look again, remind you what Jesus said to them in verse 17 of Revelation 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Over the last three months, I've had the incredible privilege to go to two different countries on mission, to Guatemala and then to Zimbabwe. And I've worshipped right alongside the poorest people on the planet who have one outfit, who live in makeshift shelters for their homes, the poorest among the poor. Comparatively, every single one of you is a multimillionaire. We are incredibly wealthy. And like this ancient church, we can become satisfied because of our exorbitant wealth. We can lose a Christmas present and order another one for 20 bucks more and it doesn't even impact us. We are so rich. And so much so we can lose our dependency upon Jesus. What did Jesus say about this church in Laodicea? You make me sick. Your lukewarmness makes me want to vomit. I want to blow chunks because of your dependency upon your own wealth and who you are. It doesn't leave it there. If you recognize this in you, I'm going to offer you an invitation. It's the very famous Revelation 3.20. He says to this same church in Laodicea that he wanted to spew out of his mouth, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The solution Jesus gives to our self-centered dependency is he opens an invitation for an intimate meal with him. You ever gone to a restaurant and the host says, how many? And you say, table for two. Jesus said, have an invitation. Let's go have a table for two. Just me and you. Let's come together in intimate fellowship and dine. Enter back into that intimacy that you shared once before where you trusted completely in me. And my question for you is, will you respond to his kind and gentle invitation? In just a moment, we're going to sing what is really a Christmas song because it talks about in the very first lines the incarnation of the God-man Jesus. He took on human flesh to save sinners like us. The song says this, Light of the world, you stepped down into darkness. Opened my eyes and let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent in intimacy of relationship with you. So what's our response, Christian? Here I am to worship. This is what we see in this blind beggar. The light of the world. I am the light of the world has opened his eyes, not physically. He could have remained physically blind the rest of his life and Jesus could have opened his eyes spiritually and he would have seen the beauty of Jesus. And his response, the same response we are called to if we have been given spiritual sight. Here I am to worship. 
Will you respond now that way as we come to the close of our service? At least in my last thought. As the light of the world, Jesus has come to give sight to all who will turn from self and surrender by faith to his righteous rule. Will you today surrender by faith to the righteous rule of Jesus?